Hi, and welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the wonderful pleasure of welcoming back a past guest, Ron Carucci. He has a 30-year track record of helping organizations adopt strategies that lead to accelerated growth and designing programs to execute those strategies. He also is a two-time TED speaker and the best-selling author of eight books, might be nine now, including an Amazon number one, Rising to Power, and he has a new book out called To Be Honest, which we'll get into today. So thanks, Ron, for joining us. Hey, Tiffany, thanks so much for having me back. It's always great to be with you. Yes, and I'm thrilled to talk about your new book because I think it's so timely, but you know the drill. Before we get in, we have to do bullish or bearish. Yeah. So I'm going to start with bullish or for it, bearish or against it. Three questions that are not too painful, if you remember. So are you ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. The first one, electric bikes. Bullish. Bullish. Or bullish. Wow, you answered that so fast. I almost didn't finish the sentence. You know, it's funny because I'm, I'm a biker um, and I have friends now who are saying, you know, they're getting a little pedal assist sometimes on a hill can be helpful. All right. All right. All right. The next one, an AI board member. Bearish. Oh, all right. Okay. Well, I might want to go back to that one. And then this is a fun one. Um, 3D printed doorknobs. Totally bullish. Amazing. Okay. People are like, what? Wait, what? Okay. So, so if you can see behind me, you see I have a collection of doorknobs back there and I think they're cool. So if I could print my own, it'd be better. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I knew that he would connect it, collected doorknobs and door knockers. And so if you're wondering why I would ask that random question, uh, that is why. And I also knew you were a biker. So uh, tried to weave in some fun ones there. Awesome. All right. So so let's dig into, um, to be honest, I'm going to set the stage a little bit. Look, the Edelman Trust Barometer has been showing over the last couple of years that there was a crisis of trust. Uh, I think the pandemic accelerated this conversation around purpose over profit, you know, and thinking more about the greater society versus just being completely a capitalist. Uh, not that I'm not for making money. I'm for, you know, also being kind along the way. Um, and so why don't you why don't you step the listeners through this amazing study that you did uh, in writing the book, to be honest? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're all tired of the, the Wells Fargo, Toronto stories. We, we, you know, we, we don't want to hear them anymore. I wanted to know, could we predict? You know, I, I was tired of um, the, the lame explanations of oh, it was the culture, it was a few bad apples. And so uh, the one place, so speaking of AI, so we used some really cool AI technology to do this analysis of more than 3,200 interviews over a 15-year period. So it was a big wow. study. To see if the data, if the analysis could tell us, could we predict under what conditions people would behave in a more honest way? Honesty defined as truth, justice, and purpose, meaning you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. It's no longer enough to say, I don't lie, to be labeled honest. Trust, to your point earlier, trust is just too hard to gain right now. People are not going to give it that easily. So could we predict under what conditions they'd behave honestly or under what conditions they would not? And if we could, um, could we then proliferate the conditions that draw honesty and prevent the ones that don't. And I had no idea where it was going to go. It was sort of a castanet wide here. Let's trust this incredible AI technology to see what it can tell us. Um, and I was blown away by what the data came back with. That in fact, there were at least four, we chose four statistically really significant factors that you could predict multiplicatively under what conditions people will be honest and what conditions they won't be. 
it's, so now I'm going to go back to my bullish and bearish question. So relying on AI, <laughs> excuse me, to find your way through this and uncover these really rich insights and signals, right, in all this data over 15 years. Yet you were really bearish on like an AI board member. Like, and, and you know, I say that sort of facetiously, but if you know anything about my CEO, Mark Benioff, he jokes all the time that Einstein is one of his board members, right, on his mobile phone. Like he will look at the dashboard and look for analytics and ask, you know, executives questions that the AI is pushing, right? And so, you know, not physically sitting in a chair AI, but more sort of the power behind it. And so, what do you so think? Those are different questions, right? So, an AI informed board meeting or an AI informed board conversation, all for it. Yep. Data neutralizes stupidity, data neutralizes politics, it neutralizes incompetence, and it neutralizes dysfunction. So, I'm all for that. But a, a robot sitting there replacing human judgment, human compassion, trying to replicate empathy, not a fan of where that might go. Um, so, but I'm all, I mean, the, I, I tell you what, Stevie, the, the technology is creepy. Like it's, it's, it's borderline creepy when you realize this is reading the data, you know, tetrabytes of information over 15 years, you know, thousands of pages of interview transcripts and making meaning, making, making statistical, reliable meaning of it. I mean, it's creepy, but in a, in the coolest possible way. And so, um, and so with rising to power, we went in with a, like good academics, which I'm really not, but a hypothesis, right? We believe this might be true. Tell us. But you know, a lot of times the academics go in looking to prove the hypothesis and no surprise they actually do. So this time we started out by asking the AI, what should we be asking you? If, you're, if it's intelligence, tell us what hypothesis we should be having about this data. So to, your, to use your word, it, it said it came back with signals. It came back with drill sites to say, here's some things lurking and one of them was correlations of truth telling and honesty and um, you know psychological safety and things that I'm like, wow, could prove that? So we said, go drill there. And boy, howdy, did it come back with stuff that blew me away. You know, the, the things that are hiding in plain sight in our organizations that we just assume are just nuisances, just irritations of big corporate organizational life and turns out are, offer far more risk than we thought. There's two things there. One is... That's why sometimes when, you know, obviously we, you and I both and many listening, well, you talk to a lot of people, a lot of executives. And when they say, oh, I didn't know that in my head, I'm always like, okay, you didn't know because you didn't ask the right questions or you weren't looking, or you didn't know because you weren't willing to drill into the data or you didn't believe the data, or you didn't know because, you know, you weren't open to sort of looking for new ways potentially of doing something like, you know, and there's probably a lot, right? But let's just sit on those for just a second. And so, you know, often get into that conversation of AI replacing humans. Can we trust it? You know, is it really, um, you know, where we want the market to go? And and I think that this is a great example of, I use the analogy that, you know, people say data is the new oil, right? And I say, well, you can't pull up to an oil rig and fill your car with raw oil. <laughs> okay. So that that's just not going to work, right? It has to Two go steps through. In between. <laughs> right? And if you, if you, then it has to go through the refinery, which is AI for me. And then out comes the insights or the signals, which is really the gasoline or the petrol that powers the business. So data for data sake is not that interesting. Like you really have to drill in. So I, what I love about this is it's a topic that I think people are trying to find their way around 
you know, if 54% of companies have experienced a material drop in trust, right? I'm using stats that you, you have and 66% of consumers would switch brands if they believe the company served a greater purpose. 50% of newly appointed executives feel that politics undermines their ability to trust their new peer set. And 14%, 14.5, how much ethical companies outperform their counterparts in the S&P. Like, I love that. It's like, that's okay. So now what? Right. So the second thing behind that would be when you walk in, if someone's listening to this and goes, yes, like, I really think we need to do this. And maybe they're an individual contributor or a team member. How could they ever sort of begin down this path to say, I just want to build trust in my team, you know, with my people and, and sort of, you know, walk my way through this new way of engaging and building? What, what would you suggest? Well, so let's start with one of the first findings in the research, which was um, clear shared identity. Be who you say you are. So your company has a value statement. It has a purpose statement. It has a mission statement. It has words that presumably describe its lived experience and, you know, what employees would say is true about your company. Well, we all know sometimes those words and actions don't match. Turns out that's not just typical. Well, that's just, you know, that's just external consumption. We don't really do that. Turns out that that's the truth that the words and the, and the lived experience of your company don't match, you're now three times more likely to have people be dishonest. Because what you've done is you've institutionalized duplicity. You've said, hey, you know, around here, we say one thing, but we do another. And that's okay. Yeah. Yep. So take that mission statement or your value statement or the purpose statement. Or take one of those promises, which is what inherently they are. They're promises. Off the wall, put it on the table in your middle of your team meeting and say, hey, how are we doing against this? If somebody followed us as a team around for a whole day with a video camera and videoed a day in the life of us, could they use that video as a training program to train on these, these words? Or would, we have, would people roll their eyes and be embarrassed? How am I doing as a leader? When you think of these words, do I come to mind? When you tell stories about me to your families at night over dinner, do the stories reflect these behaviors or do they reflect the antithesis? Just simply look for alignment. Is a, a three times factor waiting for you. If you want people to be telling you the truth and giving you the straight skinny, um, do your actions and we match. Here's a very simple litmus test as a leader. If you don't have somebody coming into your office a few times a week telling you something that makes you uncomfortable, you can be very confident your leadership sucks. Well, we, you know, we just did a global study, which we do all the time with, I don't know how many employees we have now, but let's call it 65 or 70,000, something like that. And uh, it found that the manager was that tip of the spear, to your point, like as a manager, sit down and do it, that the manager is the one that really creates that environment of psychological safety and trust and all of that. Um, and uh, I feel like they're the gladiators of a company, right? They have to manage up, they have to manage down, like they're the ones that get things done, uh, you know, to, to yeah. a big degree. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there's some way to understand the power of that. What, what do you think happens at the employee level for employees who feel like they work for a manager and a company where they have this high level of trust or psychological safety or, you know, whichever term you want to use, um, you know, what, what's the impact to the employee? So a lot of those stats I, I read off, right, were sort of the S&P and, you know, revenue and customers and brand and all that. But what about at the employee level? What did they're you find? They're going to show up really differently, right? So here's another example. One of the findings was about justice and fairness and accountability, right? Pe treating people with dignity. If your accountability systems are seen as just and fair, being the playing field level for everybody, and people are treated with dignity, meaning you see and know them for their work, um, they will show up 
four times more likely to sacrifice, to serve the greater good, and to, to give you their discretionary efforts. Um, because, you know, in today's workplace, you know, our, our accountability systems were designed for a day when our work was repeatable. How many claims did you process? How many files did you close? How many t-shirts did you print? Today, our remit is as personal as we are. Our remit is my idea, my analysis, my reflections, my creativity. So when you, you can't say to me as a manager, it's not personal. I'm just evaluating your work you know, because you're evaluating me. And if in that process, I feel undignified, do you, you, do you ever hear anybody say to you, oh, my performance review, I'm so excited. Not typically you don't because those processes have become demoralizing rather than honoring. They should be the most energizing, honoring, exciting days of the year to talk about my work and to have it reflected, even places where I'm falling short. Um, so if that's the lived experience of your employees, you know, they know their voices matter. They, the, the, the two questions of belonging and mattering, do I know I matter? Do I feel like I belong? If those questions are off the table, I never have to wonder about those. I'm going to show up 120%. If I'm spending my day wondering, does my work really matter? Do you really value it? And do I really fit in here? Um, and I'm having to navigate everything my brain is doing to try and, you know, scan the environment for cues as to the answers to those questions. All that energy is not going into my work, my ideas, my discretionary efforts, my um, extra mile, my pushing and challenging your thinking, my bringing you radical ideas to sort of advance a strategy. All that energy is not being put there because I'm too worried about fundamental needs I have in the workplace. And so take those off the table, you're gonna have an unleashed army. We did some research, or no, it wasn't us. It was, I think it was, I think it might be Bain. Don't quote me on this, but I think it might be Bain. But the research literally stated that a salesperson would not, would not spend $1 for one hour of their manager's time for coaching. Oh God, oh God. Okay. So just sit on that for a second. Right. And so, and, and it was, right. It was part of a whole study that was about, you know, since the pandemic, I'm just going to focus on sellers for a second, right. The, the actual productivity mechanics have actually increased like the amount of productivity metrics, like how many calls, what are you doing? What are you doing? What, because people aren't in the office, they're not in the cubes. They're not, you know, doing windshield or airplane time. And so managers don't know potentially what they're doing. So they increase the productivity metrics. The amount of information that they've had to enter into the CRM system, you know, has gone up. And that the time that they spend with managers is much more about productivity mm -hmm. than it is about coaching, you know, and about valuing the work and, you know, identifying what's unique to them and all of those things. So then the output was that they wouldn't spend $1 for one hour of their manager's time for coaching because the focus isn't right. Right. You know, so, you know, going back to, I'm under, know, a, I'm under a microscope with that conversation. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you're not adding value to me. You're, you're covering your ass for making sure I'm adding value to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, if you, what was surprising to you, because they, you know, one of the things I often hear is some of these conversations, if not a lot of what we're talking about is kind of the soft stuff. It's the soft stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, very Tom Peters, the soft stuff is the hard stuff, right? The yep. hard stuff is easy. Um, that the soft stuff uh, is kind of the glue now. And it's even, it's gotten into the yep. spotlight, right? The great resignation, the great reshuffle, the great, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, you know, how do you um, balance those things as an employer who's trying to, obviously has a business, 
has people now that their voices have definitely gotten louder and for, for good reason, that balance between how do I manage the business on the hard stuff, which is easy to do. We just talked about it, right? The metrics are easy to manage. Don't over pivot to give autonomy and flexibility to your people. Like you trust them enough to do what's best for them, for the business and for the customer. So fabulous question. I mean, if you, if you, if you haven't gotten the memo that compassion and empathy and curiosity uh, are now table stakes, right? It's, you know, right up there with having to read your PL. It's, it's, it's the price of entry to leadership if you, if you ever hope to gain anybody's trust. Um, so first ask yourself, do you even have that skill set? You know, how, how unnatural are those things for you? Because that would tell you something. Your discomfort is giving you a signal that you're not good at those things. So you've got to pivot to the things you're good at. And if that's the P&L, the results, the metrics, the KPIs, then take a hint that you're, lo- you're leaving money on the table by virtue of the fact that you're not doing the hard stuff, which to you has been softer. Um, uh, he, so one of the things that was surprising to me in terms of relationally was the biggest finding in our study was cross-functional relationships at the borders, at the seams. Border wars make you unresolved conflicts, you know, sales and marketing, um, supply chain and operations, uh, R&D and innovation, HR and everybody. Um, you know, if, if those seams are not stitched well, if there's not a, a way to hold that very healthy tension that exists at those seams, you are six times more likely to have people be dishonest. Because once you have dueling truths, right, it's no longer about a single source of truth. Now it's about my truth versus your truth. And my goal there is to win, not to have both of our agendas prevail. Um, so I think that unless you bring a relational look at some of the factors of who, who is your they? Right. You know, when you think about, oh, here they come, what do they want? You know, who is the department, the function, the team, the region about whom you say they? Because guess what? The more you the more they's you have, the more dishonest, you're, more dishonesty you're fostering. Right. And, and a harder question is, who's they are you? So how do you make your they's part of your we's? That takes a bridge. It takes empathy. It takes and whenever I do scene building sessions with my clients, you know, at, at very senior functions, bringing them together, inevitably what I hear is, oh, that's why I drive you crazy. I didn't know you did that. That's what you're being measured on? Oh, my gosh, no wonder we make your life miserable. You, all this knowledge that, you know, to your point, we well, you didn't know. Well, why didn't you know? This is a key partner for you. How, how could you have gone this long in partnership, really just rivalry, rather than saying, hey, we can do better. The value that you and I are supposed to create for this organization, we're not creating because we're too busy in our own squabbles. Six times more likely to make people be dishonest. The other thing I would say about employee voice, Tiffany, is that I think part of what we've, has happened in, the, in a very polarized few years, last four or five years, is I think we've confused speaking your truth with speaking the truth. And I think we've told people that if you want to have a big rant, angry rant don the posture of a giant middle finger, that that's the equivalent of speaking the truth. And, and so we've, we've, we've unleashed and liberated a sense of, I get to, I get to say what I want and think what I want. And, and sometimes that, that entitlement to my voice is, is um, a signal, not that your employees feel activated, but they feel marginalized, right? I don't, you know, I, I, I'm on the side of employee activism uh, as not necessarily being a sign of employee voice. I think it's a sign of the absence of employee voice. If, if your employees had to take to the streets to be heard, how many steps got skipped before that? 
what, why wasn't there a more productive channel for them to bring their, you know, their concerns or their hopes? You know, some of your companies in your neighborhood down there in, in, the, in the valley were all thrilled to have their employees out there activating for, you know, the, a cause. But when they activated against them, suddenly that was a problem. And so I think you have to ask yourself if your employees, you know, and, and we all, and the interesting thing about the brain science is we know that that ranting produces no satisfaction. Right. It, it makes you feel more depressed, more anxious, worse. You know, it's kind of like, you know, um, if somebody's poking you really hard and it really hurts um, and you go to that person and say, hey, I just want you to know when you poke me, it really hurts. I, I wish you wouldn't do that. You might you might get some change. But if you go to run, run out in the street and yell, people who poke suck, you know, and then everybody starts going, yeah, pokers are the worst. I hate pokers. Pokers stink. <laughs> right. You're going to be being poked. It's not going to change. Right. And so. What you think is cathartic is actually not. It's just thickening your echo chamber. So our echo chambers in our organizations are no different. If you don't break them down and expose yourself to views and people and ideas that are different than the echo chamber you're in, you're setting yourself up for people to be dishonest with you and treat you um, as if you're a rival. Well, you know, as we sort of start to wrap up, I'd love to hear the time people, effort, commitment in going down this journey. Because uh, I'm grateful and thankful that I work for a company where, for the most part, right, this we live and breathe this sort of culture. Mm-hmm. And many customers will come and want to learn Salesforce on Salesforce. Like, how do you do it, right? How do you set strategy? How do you hire? How do you create, you know, psychological safety? How do you have inclusion? How do you have employee voice? You know, all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's different because it's 21 years. We've been fairly consistent. We've just gotten bigger. So at scale, you have different challenges. Sure. Where other, other companies, they're already big and that's not their culture. So they have to shift the culture, you know, or they're a startup and they want to do, you know, they want to start on the right foot, but let, let's go through that. So you're already an established company. This isn't your culture. You feel there's a low level of trust because you've surveyed or for whatever reason, and so what do you do if you're an existing company? And then if you're a startup or you're listening to this and you want to, you know, start yep. your own business, how do you get on the right foot on this? Fabulous question. So I, I wanted to leave no stone unturned. I, I didn't want to hear, well, we're a big company. We can't change. Or I, I, we don't have the resources as a small company. So the book is chock full of roadmaps and tools. And um, if you want to, you know, we have a, I have an assessment tool that you can download for free called How Honest Is My Team, assessing you against the four findings. So, but what I tell you is this, um, it, it's a long game, right? There's, there's no overnight switch here. The great news we found in the data was this, Tiffany, it's not an all or nothing proposition. So for example, on the, on the identity piece, actions and words matching, if you improve the alignment between your actions and words as a company by even 35%, you get a 14% kicker in honesty, right? So these are continuums. So the four of these scales, you can move along. You can start small and build in practical ways every day to get there. You know, cultures, you know, I mean, <clears throat> Patagonia is one of the case studies. I talked to Vincent Stanley, who's the head of philosophy at Patagonia. He helped found it with, you know, Yvonne Chouinard. And everybody wants to be Patagonia. Well, they've been at this for 40 years, right? And so, you, you know, it's a long game. You're not going to sort of flip a switch and be a, the most trustworthy, loving company that people fall in love with and can't never want to leave in a year. Um, but you can get pretty far in a year. I mean, look what Satya has done at Microsoft, right? And and it's not where he started with, but they've worked, you know, he and Kathleen have worked really, really hard. They're a case study in the book, um, how, how they did it. You know, Hubert Jolie at Best Buy, 
right? There are, there are plenty of cases, um, Indra Nui at PepsiCo. There's lots of stories that I profiled and leaders that I talked to who, you know, their, their journey was long. Um, if you're a startup, you have, yeah, I think you are advantaged because you're not having to break bad habits. Um, what you may not be aware of is at how fast you will scale bad habits without realizing it, right? And so the, the velocity at which you're mitosising um, as, as work divides and you grow, you may not realize that um, you're inculcating bad habits, even with good intentions. So culture is something you have to be really deliberate about uh, in terms of how to create it and, being, and have lots of conversations about and never shy away from calling somebody on behavior that's not acceptable. The minute somebody gets a hall pass for a behavior that you would not value, that you would not want your daughter or son treated with, um, you, and you don't talk about it, you've now, in a startup especially, you've now made it a habit. Absolutely. Well, Ron, as always, this was such a great conversation and you've inspired me to, uh, you know, I read part of the book to get prepared for this. You've inspired me to read the rest. So thank you so much for joining us again on the What's Next podcast. How can people get in touch with you? I know you mentioned the How Honest Is My Team assessment. Uh, maybe you can tell people where they can find yeah. that and, and keep in touch with you. Well, so first, Todd Pivney, I'm so grateful for having you have me back on the show. I, I just love talking with you, but you, you, I need all the help I can get to spread the word on this thing because I really do believe it can change lives. And so any help I can get to get the word out, I appreciate it. The book has a website called tobehonest.net. Um, we did it. So if you want to meet all the, so this, to be honest, is a book of heroes. I wanted to, I wanted to write about the people I wanted to work for or that I want to emulate. So we did a TV series called Moments of Truth. And all of the research that I did, all the interviews I did, I actually videoed the, the, the video of them when I did it. And we edited them down into this, you know, 15, 30-minute episodes. I also have co-hosts who, uh, Khalil Smith from the Neural Leadership Institute and Jared Chappelle from Navlin, had their own guests. So we have segments on finding your voice and segments on everyday justice. And so you get to meet all the heroes that I met behind the book. Uh, that's at tobehonest.net. The assessment's there as well, information about the book. Come follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and if you want to learn more about our work, Navalent, N-A-B-A-L-E-N-T.com, we've got videos and white papers and free eBooks uh, for you to download. It's a treasure trove of leadership stuff. So if you want more support there, find us there as well. But please do stay in touch. Well, that is amazing. You know, what I love is being a giver and kind of giving back to the next generation of leaders. And hopefully we leave, you know, all of this better than where we found it. So Amen. thank Amen. you so much, Ron, for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. Thanks, Tiffany. You're the best. What a treat to have Ron back on the What's Next podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Please go out and take a look at that How Honest Is My Team assessment. Take it. If you're a leader, if you're an individual contributor, what kinds of questions and conversations can you have with your people in order to deliver and create an environment where everybody feels they belong and what they do every day matters? Thank you for listening in to this episode of the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave some feedback, share with your friends, and I'll look forward to you joining me next time. Take care, everybody.